Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Anthony. Uh, I serve as the Director of Global Engagement here at City Light. Lincoln, which basically means I get the huge privilege of just getting to see our church family be a part of taking the gospel to parts of the world that don't have it. And so, love what I get to do. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, just so thankful for our church family every time that, yeah, I get to be up here. I just look around and I'm just so thankful for every single person that makes our church family who it is. And so, we're just, we are missing a ton of our students that are part of our SALT conference about Almost 350 of our students are at uh, Fall Retreat this weekend, so be praying for them. Also this morning, a special welcome to all the kids in the room. It's a family gathering, and so kids in the room, we want you to know that you guys are just a huge valued member of us, members of our family. It's not just the grown-ups, but you guys are also a part. And so if you're not a kid in the room and you see kids around you, welcome them, help them to feel like they belong. And if you hear the whispering and like the crunching of bags from their uh, goldfish and stuff, it's okay. We want them to be here. Um, awesome. And so I'm so thankful, guys, that I get to um, walk, continue to walk us through the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 1, um, the Bree read, verses 19 through 27. And I'm super excited to jump in. But before we jump in, I'm going to pray. Um, yeah, King Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us the implanted word that gives us instruction for how to live life and who we are and who you are and how you created us. Um, yeah, we're thankful for your grace. Would you open our hearts in this time? Would this be a time that is glorifying and, yeah, just honoring to you? In your name, Jesus, amen. So as we get started, I wanna know, have you ever experienced the frustration of congestion? Have you ever experienced the frustration of congestion? Uh, maybe for you this fall, you're experiencing it in your nose, in your sinuses. Um, anybody here have terrible allergies this time of year? It's the worst. Just, I'm going to put it out there. I will probably have to like clear my throat and it's going to be a little gross. Just putting that out there. Um, but it's the worst. It's terrible. You want to go outside. You want to enjoy the beautiful fall weather, but you know you're going to come home and you're going to be congested the next day. Or maybe you've experienced traffic congestion. Uh, too many cars, not enough lanes in the road. Traffic is backed up. You just want to get where you're going, uh, but you can't. We, my wife and I got to spend some time in Dallas a couple summers ago, and they talked about, yeah, it takes about 15 minutes to get there um, without traffic, but with traffic, it takes an hour and a half. And we didn't believe it the first time, and we were definitely an hour and a half late to our first meeting across town. Um, our family is about to experience some congestion. Uh, my wife and I have five amazing boys, and we found out within the last couple of months that we are welcoming new, a new family member, but not just one family member. We're inviting twins into our family. <laughs> praise God. Praise God. It's going to be awesome, but we will experience some congestion when our family of nine is sharing one full bathroom, um, and it's bath time, so that'll be a little crazy. Um, but the, the reality is, is that uh, congestion always leads us to frustration. Congestion always leads us to frustration. We just want to, when we're breathing, we just want to be able to breathe the air in our lungs or in through our nose, through our lungs and back out. When traffic, we just want to get from one side of town to the other. So when we're backed up, when things aren't running as smoothly and there's not the flow that we expect, we end up frustrated. And as frustrating and uncomfortable as these kinds of physical congestion can be, I think they can teach us a lot about a deeper kind of congestion, and that's a spiritual congestion that we all experience in our lives. Chances are that you've experienced spiritual congestion if you've ever asked yourself questions like this. Why doesn't my life reflect all of the biblical knowledge that I have? Or what's the point of reading the Bible anyway? Why would I want to do that every day? Or why does the church even exist? Is it just a spiritual version of college? Is it just a really expensive book club? 
Or why are some parts of the Bible so much easier for me to apply than others? Or maybe you're wondering why you've plateaued in your walk with Jesus. My hope is that by the end of the day, today we'll have some of those questions answered. And just like physical congestion um, happens when we're backed up, when we, there's not a general flow um, in our lives, spiritual congestion happens when we don't have a flow of spiritual information to physical application in our lives. The main point that I want us to see today, if you come away with anything, I want you to come away with this truth, that spiritual information without physical application leads to spiritual congestion. Again, spiritual information without physical application leads to spiritual congestion. And James makes this point. He actually defines spiritual congestion for us in verse 22, which we'll get to later. But this is the anchor verse for our passage this morning, where James calls us. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So James would define, also would define spiritual congestion as being hearers of the word and not being doers. And so this morning, as we look at this reality of spiritual congestion in our lives, we're going we're gonna to follow James as he kind of lays out three shifts in our lives to pursue decongesting our spiritual life. And so we're, we'll start by looking at the first shift, and that first shift is from rejection to repentance, from rejection to repentance. And those are in verses 19 through 21. And they say, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, spiritual congestion keeps us from experiencing the righteousness of God. That's what... Um, that's what James said in, in verse 20. He's right in the middle. He said that the goal is to see the righteousness of God produced in our lives. And we all want the righteousness of God produced in our lives. The best example of what that could look like is living the life that Jesus lived. He was the perfect example of righteousness on display, of righteousness lived out. He was the perfect example of a decongested life. Every interaction he had, every decision he made, every one of his thoughts was pure and right and perfect. He was the perfect example of a decongested life. And we always want to be like the people that we love. Um, If we want to be like the people that we love, it looks like we listen to the same books they listen to, we talk the same way that they talk, we watch the same shows that they watch. The people that we love and respect, we just want to be like them. We want to live life like that. And so how natu- if we so naturally want to be like the people around us that we admire, like our parents or a coach or um, coworkers or a boss or a spiritual leader in our lives, how much more should we be drawn to live a righteous life that Jesus lived? Imagine what our lives, what our world would look like if we all pr- had a little bit more of Jesus's righteousness produced in our lives. And James is making us clear that the way that that, spirit, that that righteousness is lived out in our lives is based on how we respond to the word of God. And he lays out two different responses of how we can respond to his word revealed to us. And that is either through rejecting it or repenting towards it. He lays out first what it looks like to reject God's word. Let's look at those again in verse 19 through 20. He said that it is, uh, that, or we won't read it, but in 19 through 20 it says that we are to be slow to speak, quick or quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I'm convinced that what James is talking about in these verses isn't necessarily the way that we interact with others, even though it should apply. If we practice that more in our friendships and our relationships, we would definitely see fruit from that. But I'm convinced that what he's actually talking about is the way that we respond to the word of God. 
when God speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, how we respond to that. And he says that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And what does rejecting his look like? What does rejecting his word look like? It looks like the opposite of that. Rather than being quick to hear, we're slow to hear. Rather than being slow to anger and slow to speak, we can be, that's such a tongue twist, you guys. I just struggled on that. Mentally, I could not, could not get there. Thanks for having grace with me. But what does that actually look like? What does that look like? Um, being slow to hear, being slow to hear God's word. How does that actually play out in our lives? When we're slow to hear God's word, maybe we are listening to a sermon or we're reading something in scripture, um, but because it's challenging or it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient at the time, we say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna be actually slow to respond to that. I'll wait till a time when it's maybe a little bit more convenient, a time when it's a little bit more comfortable and a little less challenging. We're all tempted to be slow to hear God's word, but that's a form of rejection. But we can also be quick to speak and to be angry against God's word. Have you ever been reading or listening to a sermon and you're like, I don't really like that, I'm just gonna skim over that real fast? Or in a sermon you're like, I'm not really gonna write that note down because that just doesn't, I don't like what that has to say. Maybe you don't like what God has to say about sexuality or identity or aim of life or how you spend your time or how you interact with people and you say, I don't like that, God. I'm angry about that. I want to be slow. I want to be quick to speak back to it and quick to anger. And don't get me wrong. It is completely okay to wrestle with God. It's completely okay to ask him questions. He can handle us beating on his chest. But at the end of the day, if our goal in our lives is to see the righteousness of God produced in our lives, then we want to be quick to hear it. We want to be slow to speak against it, and we want to be slow to anger against it. And now if rejecting God's word causes congestion, James encourages us instead to respond to it with repentance. And that's what he said in, verses 21, in verse 21, where he said, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So if the opposite of rejection is repentance, what does that look like? And I think James gives us the two verbs that he uses in this sentence, um, gives us a beautiful description of what repentance is. And the verbs that he uses is to put away and to receive, put away and to receive. Now, I'm actually a huge fan of having uh, personal vision and mission and value statements. I think it's incredibly helpful. I think that um, the vision of our life drives our train. The, what we want to see is the, the future reality of our lives in 10, 20, 50 years from now helps govern and decide how we respond and what the decisions that we make today. Our family actually has like a little vision statement with some values that hangs up on our mantle. And we use it, we genuinely, we use it all the time when we have a big decision. We're like, but is this gonna get us closer to the mission that God has for our family? Does this align with our values? And it's a good heart check. I think it's incredibly helpful. And I think all of us have those. All of us have these statements, whether they're written down or not, we all have a vision for our life that we're wanting to live out. We all have values that govern our decisions every day. And all of us, whether we know it or not, have them. And James's call for us is to take inventory of that. It's to stop and to look at our lives. What is the vision? What are the values that are dictating where my life is going? And how is my life either in line or not aligned with his vision, his values, and his desires for our lives. And now maybe you would say that your life um, shouldn't be characterized as wickedness or filthiness that this word uses. But again, if the purpose of seeing the righteousness, but if the purpose of this is to see the, the, um, the righteousness of God produced in our lives, 
then anything that's out of step with that, anything that doesn't result in either experiencing more of God or anything that doesn't result in him being glorified in our lives is void of that, um, falls short of what we were created for. I love the vision of us like having like our mission statements like written out and just all of us, if we could have it displayed in all of the ways that we're either not aligned with God's vision and more aligned with the world, just taking Sharpies and just crossing out thing after thing and saying, God, I want my life to be more aligned with yours. But marking that off, marking those values off, marking those parts of our vision is only half of it. The other half is to receive something new. Again, putting away was half of it. The other half was to receive something new. It's receiving the new vision, the new values, the new mission that God has for us and his implanted word. It's his implanted word that is found in scripture that's applied by the spirit in our lives that allows us to see the vision that he has for us. From Genesis to Revelation, we get to see what God desires from our lives. And one thing that I think that we can apply even today, is I would even encourage you guys to, to go home throughout this week and to really like think about, like, God, what is the vision I've been living for? What, take an inventory. What have I been pursuing? What are the values that have been governing my life? And how are they not aligned? How are they in line or not in line with yours? Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I, first of all, want to say that I'm super grateful that you're here, super thankful that you would entrust our church family with your spiritual journey, and am thankful that you're here. And I want you to know that this idea of repentance is the core to what the church believes, that we believe that God created the world to be this perfect place for us to experience beautiful relationship with him, but because we've rejected his word, we've experienced brokenness. And there's countless things that we can try to do to get ourselves out of the brokenness, but they just bring us right back in. But the good news is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on a sinner's cross for in the place of sinners, and he rose from the dead. And it's our act of repentance. It's our act of repenting and turning away and choosing to follow him and take on his righteousness that we find new life and are restored back to him. And so I just want you to know that we're going to talk about doing good works. We're going to talk about doing good deeds today. But the core of the Christian belief is not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done in our place. And I would love for you to consider taking him up on the invitation to find life in him. And so friends, everybody here this morning, James's call for us is to respond to God's word. It's to receive his word. But mental acceptance isn't enough. The word must also impact our lives The second shift that we're going to look at is from hearing and forgetting to hearing and doing. The second shift from hearing and forgetting to hearing and doing. And those are found in verses 22 through 25. We'll read those. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in these, in these verses, James is making a very clear distinction between two groups of people. There's the people that hear the word and forget what it says, and then there's the people who hear the word and actually do it. Now, we are so blessed. We get to live in a society in a day and age where we have access to the most robust and plentiful gospel resources available to us. Endless amount of podcasts that we can listen to, endless amount of YouTube videos to watch, endless amounts of books. There's churches on every corner. We have so much access to information. 
But does our access to information actually mean that we're being more faithful to live out that application? I feel like there's a, like, is there, is there a correlation? Does our amount of information actually lead to the same amount of increased application? I would argue that actually we can be tempted to take our access to information and think that that is enough. I would argue that our access to information can tempt us to too easily be content with just simply consuming information without experiencing transformation. I've seen this in my own life. It's so easy for me to go through a week, to go listen to Austin's sermon on a Sunday morning, to listen to a couple of blogs throughout the week, to, or read a couple of blogs, listen to a couple of podcasts, and think, I'm doing pretty good with Jesus. But at the end of the day, did any of that information that I consumed actually translate into application in my life? Information is so much easier to consume than it is to implement. Taking in content feels good. It feels good, right, to be able to say, I've got this stack of books that I've read. I've got all of this podcast that I have said played. It's really easy to consume it, but to apply it actually takes, we have to die to ourselves. We have to, we have to die to control in our lives. We have to die to comfort and desires. Implementing it is so much harder than ingesting it. But James warns us that if we're only hearing and not doing, that we're being deceived and congested. Now, when we talk about doing in the Christian life, we need to also talk about two terms that are legalism and license. Legalism and license are two, um, two different ends of the obedience spectrum. So on, on one end, you have license that says there's grace, I'm covered by grace, so what I actually do doesn't really impact life that much. So I'm going to not necessarily read my Bible. All the, I'm not going to be faithful to reading my Bible and applying what I'm reading. Whereas legalism is the complete opposite side. Legalism says, yeah, I might have been saved by grace, but it's my works that keep me in right standing with God. Um, and that, that's not a helpful place to be either. These are two ditches that we can fall in when we talk about um, obedience. And we don't want to do either of those. We want to be in the middle. But just, but. Legal license says that the cure to spiritual congestion is to do less. It's to do less, whereas legalism says that the cure is to do more. But I'm convinced that what James is talking about isn't about us doing more, and it's not about us doing less. It's actually not about our activity at all, and it's more about our identity. It's more about our identity and how we look, both at the Word and what the Word has to say about ourselves. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again. They say, but he who is, but for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, why do we look into a mirror? We look in a mirror to remember who we are. We look into a mirror to remember what we are like, what, who, what our identity is. And what is this mirror? The mirror is the perfect word of God. It is not our strengths finder strengths. It's not our Enneagram number. It's not the name of our church or our identity also isn't the list of, um, of things that we've done on our religious resume, but it's the word of God. It's the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word of God that tells us who we are. And it's as we operate according to our identity that we become decongested. Now, here's what this looks like. The word says that we should pursue community. Legalism would say you better show up to Citigroup every single week and be faithful or you're going to lose God's blessing on your life. Whereas license would say, oh, there's grace. Like show up when it's convenient for you. It's okay. But the word of God says you are a member of the body of Christ. You are a valued member. You have a specific role that you can play. You've been blessed to be a member of his body. So pursue community because that's just who you are. 
Another example would be how we confess. It would be the word says to confess our sin. Legalism says you better confess all your sin right now, all the way, and not miss out anything, or you're going to lose out on God's favor and God's blessing in your life. I, license would say, there's grace. Like, confess your sin. At the end of the day, is it really that big of a deal? But our identity in Christ says we're adopted into God's family. We are his Children, and no matter what we do, can't separate us. And we have brothers and sisters who are running the race with us, learning what it means to be a part of God's family team. So we can share how we fall short with our brothers and sisters. Another example would be the word says to make disciples of all nations. Legalism would say you better be a missionary and go overseas just to make sure that you cross all the boxes off, just to make sure you can have all the good deeds, um, all the good deeds bases covered, whereas license would say, that's pretty inconvenient, that's pretty hard, there's grace, like, don't necessarily do that. But our identity in Christ would say we have the privilege and the honor of being representatives and ambassadors of Christ, and so we have the honor of taking the gospel to people and telling him them about our Savior. And in verse 25, it says that we will be blessed in our doing. It says that we'll be blessed in our doing. And now, I want to be clear that this isn't some kind of Christian karma, where if we do enough right things, we experience these physical blessings as a reward. But I think what James is telling us is that the blessing comes as we experience more of our identity in Christ being fleshed out. The fullness of Christ in us is what the blessing is. Now, each of us tends towards either legalism or license. This might change in different seasons of our lives, but... My encouragement to you is no matter what end of the spectrum it is, don't just stop doing the things that you're involved in or don't just start doing things for the sake of doing things. But my encouragement to you is to really take time to reflect on who is God, who has he made you to be, what are elements of your identity and how can you live those out? So the call for our lives is to be doers who act. But what kind of actions are we actually supposed to be doing? James gives us the answer to this question as he gives us our final shift in pursuing spiritual decongestion from worthless religion to pure religion. And we find those in verses 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, have you ever been congested with good things? Have you ever had too much of a good thing? This happens to our family every single summer. Uh, my boys are actually amazing gardeners. Shout out to the Belling boys in the front row here. Um, they're amazing gardeners, but we plant a garden in our backyard every year. And around this time of year, we have tons of tomatoes, tons of peppers that are awesome. But we're like, okay, these are great, but what do we actually do with them? Like, we still have salsa from last year. We're not making any more chili. What do we actually do with them? There's nothing wrong with the fruit, but we don't have anything to do with it. It looks like the neighbors are getting another bag of our vegetables. They can throw them away. I'd rather them throw them away than us. Um, but this is the idea that James is getting about when he talks about worthless religion, religion that's full of information, that's full of content, that's full of um, facts, but it's, worse, but it's worthless because we're not actually doing anything with that information. But what does James characterize worthless religion as? As an unbridled tongue and a deceived heart. Now, an unbridled tongue, so a bridle, um, is actually a, a tool that's used with horses. It's used to help direct and guide a horse in the, in the direction that you want it 
to go. And so James is saying that worthless religion is evident is evidenced when our words aren't guided and directed by his word. What does this actually look like today? I think it's primarily expressed in our boasting, but especially in the context of this passage, I think it's boasting about our spiritual knowledge. In the previous verses, James made it very clear that information can't cure spiritual congestion. And in verse 26 here, he's also making the argument that conversation doesn't do it either. Being able to articulate the facts doesn't lead to congestion either. It feels good to know the right things, right? It feels good to be able to give a good response to a thoughtful question. It feels good to have more ammunition in a debate um, than the person you're arguing against. And there's nothing wrong with those. Like, James isn't saying that knowing the Bible is bad. He's not saying that being able to convince other people of truth is bad. But I think that the enemy would love nothing more than to have a church full of people who are educated and articulated in facts, but when it comes to actually living out those realities, they fall short. Now, following Jesus and pure religion is much more than intellectual knowledge and understanding. And it's also more than articulation. So what does James say the shift to, from worthless religion to pure religion is? Again, he gives us the verse in 27. Let's read it again. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James gives us two practical examples of what pure religion is. It's to care for, it's to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and it's to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And I think it's really important to see what James doesn't say pure religion is. He doesn't say that it's visiting worship services. He doesn't say that it's singing songs. He doesn't say that it's tithing. He doesn't say that it's being in a small group or praying before your meals. Again, not that any of those things aren't important, but they aren't the end goal in and of itself. And before we talk about what this actually looks like in our lives, I think it's really, really cool to just stop and, and think like, wow, God, you could have described pure religion as anything. You could have said it's everybody needs to come to the temple and worship me. You could have said it's building really cool buildings and monuments to me. He could have said anything here, but he chooses to say that it's caring for orphans and widows in their distress. That is pure religion to him. I think this shows his heart in so many ways. You see, Orphans and widows would have been the most vulnerable people on the planet at that time. There weren't government programs or social programs to care for children without families or widows without without families to care for them as well. They would have had the hardest time fending for themselves. They were the most vulnerable. And these verses remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he separates humanity into two different categories. He puts some on the left and some on the right. And to the ones on the right... He said he invites them to inherit the kingdom that he's prepared for them. And he says, um, he says that you're invited because when, when he was thirsty, they gave him rest. When he was hungry, they gave them food. When he was a stranger, they welcomed him. When he was naked and in need of clothing, they clothed him. And when he was sick and in prison, they visited him. And the people in the crowd are like, but when in the world did we do that for Jesus? We, this is the first time we've, we've met him. But he says, what you did for the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. Jesus' heart is so closely connected to those who are in need and hurting that he identifies himself with them, saying that whatever you do for them, it's like you've done it for me. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story, isn't it? That when you were spiritually defenseless against sin, Jesus rescued you. 
When you were a spiritual orphan, Jesus adopted you into his family. When we were widows, Jesus made us the bride of Christ. When we were spiritual refugees, Jesus gave us a home. When we were spiritually poor, Jesus gave us an inheritance. When we were spiritually used and abused, Jesus gave us counsel and healing. And when we were unreached, Jesus brought the gospel to us. Overcoming spiritual congestion by application and pure religion isn't us just working up enough energy to do some good works, to spruce up our religious resume. Following Jesus is about realizing everything that Jesus has done for us, the identity that he has given us, and responding by passing that on to others. You see, we care for orphans because we were orphans. We care for widows because we were widows. We care for the refugee because we were refugees. We care for the poor because we were poor. We care for the used and abused because we were used and abused. We bring the gospel to the unreached because we were unreached. Friends, what if we didn't expect the highlight of our worship experience to be the hype concert with our favorite band, but what if we saw it as a sleepless night caring for a newborn baby experiencing drug withdrawals? What if the highlight of our spiritual walk each week wasn't the Sunday morning gathering, but was the faithful pursuit of a refugee neighbor despite the awkward and linguistic and cultural barriers? What if we didn't see our city group as simply a group of people to meet our own needs and to find comfort in ourselves, although we should do that? But what if we saw it as a community to share the comfort of Christ with others? Friends, it's much easier to imagine these things than it is to do them. From personal experience, um, our own family has welcomed in, previously had welcomed in a, a young refugee woman into our home, and we stayed up Uh, countless hours throughout the night as she mourned the loss of her family and home. We've welcomed foster children into our family, and we've had to go to our own therapy as we've experienced secondhand trauma. We've opened up our home to a widower from Central Asia who's become semi-dependent on us, and we have lost rest to care for him. Now, I don't say these things to boast. That's the very last thing that I want to do is to boast, but I do want to just share that it's through these experiences that we've got the blessing of getting to experience more fully the identity that God's given us as as adopted children into his family, as uh, citizens of his nation, and as members of his bride. And I also share it to say that the pursuit of pure religion is costly. Honestly, I felt pretty tapped out in a lot of these things, pretty at the end of my rope when it comes to this. But James has given us, just reading through James, I feel like it's given me, just a, a, has reframed it all for me, that the reason that I'm doing this isn't, again, to just do good works, but the reason we're involved in these things is because this is pure religion. It's that as we do these things, that we get to serve our Savior. And now James says um, that caring for orphans, is widow, orphans and widows is one side of the pure religion coin, but he also says the other side is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And I think that one of the most significant roadblocks to us living out that, um, living out this decongested life is not just the information in our heads, but it is also the affections of our hearts. In the previous passage that Austin preached um, last week, we looked at how it's sinful desires, it's desires within our own hearts that when they give, uh, when they take root, they, they lead to death and, or sin and death. Later in chapter four that we'll study later, James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It says we pursue sinful desires. It says we pursue friendship with the world that results in this 
um, stained life that God is talking about. And I think it's so much deeper than just our behavior. I think it's so much has to do with the affections of our hearts, the things that we love and long for. Satan would love nothing more than to take us out of of God's call to caring for the vulnerable by giving us really good competing values. I don't think we ever choose um, to go against God's kingdom for bad things. I think it's always in pursuit of good things. Like I would, some examples is I would love to move into that neighborhood to live more missionally, but I also want to be safe. Or I want to be a foster parent, but I also want my own children to have um, a normal life, a normal childhood. Or I want to invite my neighbors over to dinner for connection and intentional conversation, but I also just want to relax. It's been a long day. And not that safety, not that comfort, not that rest are bad things in and of themselves. But how often do we give ourselves, how often do we choose to value God's kingdom over our own? And I know, just to affirm, I know that so many of us are doing these things. So this isn't, again, a guilt thing, but it's just a really a heart check on how are the affections of my heart driving me into pursuing pure religion? Friends, could you imagine what our church, what our city, and what our world would look like if we all lived more spiritually decongested lives, if the content that we're bringing in from scriptures, we sit in, um, sit in gatherings on Sunday mornings, the studies that we're doing in our city groups, the podcasts that we're listening to, all of which are beautiful and amazing gifts from God that we have, but how would the world be different if we actually started taking faithful steps to apply those every single day? Now, my call this morning isn't necessarily for a whole church to go and adopt all of the kids in foster care. It's not to start going and visiting um, nursing homes to go visit the orphans, but I really do think that the call for our church is to really take time reflecting on how are we, pursu- how are we choosing to receive God's word instead of reject it and lead out in repentance? How are we choosing to um, be doers of the word and not hearers only? And how are we choosing to um, practice pure religion and not worthless religion? Friends, as we leave today, as we leave this morning, my, my, my challenge to you is to really discern what is my identity in Christ? Who has he made me to be? Who am I in the, um, in the mirror of his word? And how can I live that out every single day? Let's pray.